We are in Genesis 11. We're going to look uh, in verse 27 all the way to chapter 12, verse 3. We're just going to scream through just, you know, half a dozen verses there. The topic, Abraham sets out for Canaan for the promised land, but he hesitates in Haran for a long while before fully heeding God's call. The title of our message this morning, The Time to Hesitate is Through. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you this morning for the time that you've given us to uh, spend uh, before your word, Lord, in an attitude of humility, uh, with a heart to hear from you. And Lord, as we look at the life of Abraham, we're really trying to learn more about you. Certainly, we're, we're learning about him and his experiences, but none of those would matter if it weren't for you and the way that you related to him. And we want to understand that. We want to know the depth of it, the wonder of it, the joy of it, uh, so that we too, Lord, can walk with you and be called friend of God. And so, Lord, help us as we get started to, uh, to see the things, Lord, that are most needful. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our real teacher here today, taking your word and making application of it. And Lord, we'll know that that's happening because there'll be a sense of, of your love in our hearts. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Have you ever been put on hold? Well, of course you have. And just mentioning it probably reminds you of a time when you finally hung up rather than go on waiting. And that was probably on a call to computer giant Dell. And the reason I say that uh, is because I, I wouldn't know because I buy Macintosh computers. But anyway, in a recent uh, survey, June 2011, Dell was rated just about the worst company overall for its response time to waiting customers, both on the phone and also in response to email. So God bless you Dell owners out there. What if I told you it was possible to put God on hold? Well, it sounds strange, but it is all too possible. Obviously, I'm not talking about getting a phone call from God. Any of you who have received recent phone calls from God, we'd like to talk to you after the service. We have a special area where we do that. Uh, and so I'm not talking about that, but we do receive calls, or we might say callings, uh, in our lives from God. Abraham certainly did. According to the commentary of Stephen, the first Christian martyred in the book of Acts, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Abraham saw the Lord. He was saved. He received God's call while in Mesopotamia in a place called Ur. He immediately set out with his father Terah and he got as far as Haran. Stephen noted that he dwelt in Haran. In fact, Stephen would go on to say, Abraham dwelt in Haran and from there, when his father was dead, he moved to this land in which you now dwell. We learn from Stephen that Abraham set out but stopped short in Haran. If you do the math, Abraham delayed in Haran, short of the promised land, for five long years until his dad died. There can be no doubting that he hesitated in Haran. In essence, he put God's call upon his life on hold. If Abraham was capable of hesitating, then so are we. 
But likewise, if Abraham was capable of reheating God's call even after years of delay, so are we. And that's our encouragement this morning. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, take the time to review the call of God upon your life. Number two, today is the time to revive the call of God upon your life. Let's take a look, first of all, at our review of God's call and God's callings. Now, there are some remarkable relationships between God and his followers in the Old Testament, but only one man was ever called the friend of God. Abraham is called that twice in the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, Abraham is called God's friend forever. He was the original BFF. Uh, And so, uh, hey, that's what it says. In Isaiah 41.8, God refers to the Israelites and he says, these are the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Then in the New Testament book of James, we read that Abraham was called the friend of God. It's James 2.23. Now, Abraham may be the only Old Testament saint so-called, but he is not alone. Jesus Christ looked at his disciples both then and now, and he said, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. If we too then are the friends of God, best friends forever, then we should learn something about what it means to have a friendship with God from Abraham. What does it mean? The very first thing we learn is strangely comforting to me because we learn that even Abraham fell short in his walk, putting the call of God on hold, hesitating. We don't glory in disobedience or in waiting or in these things, but we can relate to it, can we not? I mean, sometimes you approach these Bible characters as if they're on this amazing pedestal, and it's, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't really pull any punches about these guys. And when we first encounter Abraham, he's really having a tough time following God's call. And so we're introduced to Abraham as Abram. It's about 400 years after Noah's flood. God is going to change his name in a little while. We'll call him Abraham throughout. Uh, Verse 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Ishkah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and they dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Now we're introduced to some people who are going to be important to the life of Abraham as we go on. Uh, We see Lot, he's Abraham's brother's son, making him his nephew. And there's speculation that when Haran died, Abraham became kind of a guardian to Lot. There's a marriage of Abraham's brother Nahor, and it's mentioned because he would become the grandfather of Laban and Rebekah, both of whom later figure prominently in the story of Abraham's grandson, Jacob. It was in Ur, according to Stephen, that God appeared to Abraham. The departure of the family from Ur for Canaan was in response to that call upon Abraham's life. They only got as far as Haran, though, and then they settled down there. And for five years until Terah died, Abraham delayed. God had distinctly said, get out of your country, 
Get away from your family and your father's house. Go to the land that I will show you. He'd been told to leave his father and the extended family behind and travel all the way to the promised land. Instead, he either convinced them to come along or he compromised and he let them come along. Those are the only two real possibilities. Now, Abraham's decision to delay in Haran reminds you of the man in Matthew chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, where we read this. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Notice this man is called a disciple, but he wishes to delay a particular call to follow Jesus. He wants to go and bury his father. Now Jesus' answer seems harsh until you understand the circumstances. This man's father wasn't dead. He was asking Jesus if he could delay following him until his elderly parents passed away and were buried. This was a common expression in Jewish culture to communicate that the son felt he had a responsibility and a reason to stay with his parents. And so they would be asked to do something. He says, well, let me bury my father. In other words, it's the wrong time in my life. I have to wait until my parents are dead to act on my own. Uh, and, you know, I, I just can't do this. The responsibility was to honor his parents, and, and that is a good responsibility. The reason, you won't forfeit your inheritance, because if you left your parents uh, prematurely, you would be cut out of the inheritance. Leaving his family to follow Jesus would make it seem as if he was choosing Jesus over his family, and it would cut him off from receiving any inheritance at the death of his father. We see this all the time. I see it a lot here in Kings County, as a matter of fact. Um, you know, without picking on any one particular group, uh, over the years I've known a lot of people. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ out of a Roman Catholic background. I did myself, and so I can speak to this. Uh, here in our area, it, there's a very strong kind of family in- influence if you're uh, from a Roman Catholic family. And, and when you say that you've become a Christian... And, uh, man, it's on. It's, it's, you know, nobody likes that in your family. Uh, and, and there's, you know, I get questions all the time like, well, you know, my, my grandma wants me to baptize, you know, our baby in the Catholic Church and they're going to disown us if we don't. Do you think that's okay? Or I go to the Catholic Church, then I come to Calvary Chapel or, you know, that kind of a thing because the family is, you know, pressing in on us so much. And those are all important individual decisions, but it's the kind of thing that we're talking about here where, where Jesus might be calling a person to a certain life and lifestyle and they say, well, you know, I, I have to bury my family first. I have too many ties to my family in order to, you know, do exactly what the Lord wants me to do. But, you know, someday that'll be over and I'll be free. And so we all face these kinds of things. And we don't know what happened to this disciple in Matthew His decision is not recorded for us. It should be clear enough, however, that believers often offer excuses to delay the call of God. We may have a responsibility. We may have logical reasons. Uh, But uh, still, a call from God is something that seems to overrule and override every other responsibility and reason. It's a stop whatever you're doing and follow the Lord situation. And Matthew, who recorded this incident with this disciple, he was one who understood that because there at the receipt of customs, as a tax collector, the Lord came by one day and said, I want you to follow me, and he did. 
He left everything to follow the Lord. Uh, and so it's a very kind of uh, interesting situation that we're looking at here. And you can see Abraham receiving this call from God, but hesitating, uh, falling short. It's an encouragement to us, but not an encouragement to stay there. It's an encouragement to get moving. It might be good to stop and talk about exactly what we mean by God's call. It's illustrated very simply in the life of Abraham because it had two distinct parts. The first was a call to salvation and the second was a call to service. We read that God appeared to Abraham. That's what Stephen told us. We don't know exactly what that means. I think it was probably in the form of what the Old Testament calls the angel of the Lord. It was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ prior to his coming in the first century in human flesh as the God-man. So as you read through the Old Testament, sometimes angels come and they minister to people and they bring messages. But oftentimes, too, there is this character, the angel of the Lord. Uh, and you know that he's not just an angel because men bow down and worship him and he receives their worship. And so scholars tell us it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ before Jesus became a man and was the God man in a physical body he could appear and would appear as the angel of the Lord and so this is probably how he came to Abraham regarding this appearance of the Lord we read in James that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness the Apostle Paul makes much of this appearance of the Lord in the book of Romans where he explains how sinful men are saved by a holy God without God violating his nature. He establishes that Abraham simply believed God and then God declared him righteous. When I first got saved, um, I had the attitude and the understanding that a lot of people have that if you lived in the Old Testament times, you got saved by keeping God's law. You went through the rites and the rituals and the ceremonies and you dressed a certain way and you had a certain diet. And when you did all those things, you were a saved individual. But thankfully now we're in the New Testament and all we have to do is believe on Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen from the dead. And then as you begin to study the Bible, you realize that, that, that Old Testament saints were never saved by keeping the law because no one can keep the law. We're studying the book of Romans on Wednesday nights right now. And the whole purpose of the law is like an x-ray to expose what a sinner you are. No one can keep it at all. Uh, and so, uh, how were people saved? That was the big question Paul was answering. And he says, well, I'll tell you how they were saved. They're saved the way Abraham was saved before the law was ever given. He simply believed God. That, God, that he was a sinner and God was his savior and God accounted it to him for righteousness. He declared him righteous and saved him. And that's the way everybody has been saved. That's the way Adam and Eve were saved in the Garden of Eden and everyone ever since then. Looking forward to the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament, looking back on his coming uh, in the New Testament. Have you answered that call to salvation? Before we move on and talk about these other things, that's an important question. If not, don't delay any longer. It's one call you definitely don't want to leave on hold. Now, God is gracious. God will wait. You have your entire lifetime to respond to the call of God. I almost don't like saying that because it gives somebody, you know, the feeling that there's not an urgency, but there really is. 
Still, God will honor even last-second deathbed conversions. The problem, of course, is that you don't know when your deathbed is coming or even if you'll have a deathbed. I think, you know, we don't like to think about dying before we're uh, saved. and Well, we don't like to think about it afterwards either. But uh, before we're saved, we just kind of go through life. And I think the average person probably thinks he'll live to 117 and then he'll go to the doctor with a little bit of a pain and the doctor will say, you've got 10 years to live. And then you make your bucket list. You know, all these movies and people talking about their bucket list and, you know, uh, you know you're not going to have time to do any of that stuff. And then you'll die, you know, at age 150 or something like that because you don't really think about it. And, you know, there are people that happens. They don't live that long. But, you know, you go through life, you uh, live to a ripe old age, you contract some disease or illness, and then you slowly uh, die. And there's a beautiful deathbed scene and all that. And then there's people who just get killed instantly in a car wreck. You're driving down the street. And the next thing you know, you're dead. You wake up dead. Heart attacks, aneurysms, those kinds of things. Am I scaring you? I'm not doing it to scare you. It's the reality. And so if you're out there and you've not received Christ as your Savior and you're thinking, well, I, you know, I'm the thief on the cross. I'll wait until the last minute. I'll always have time. Hey, from God's perspective, yeah, you've got all the time in the world because He'll wait for you. There's only one sin that God will uh, that can't forgive, and that is dying having rejected Jesus Christ as your Savior. But the trouble is, your life is like a vapor. It's a vapor of smoke. It appears for a moment, and then it vanishes away. And no one knows how long we have, or if you'll have that last moment of consciousness to cry out to the Lord, or if you even do it. I've talked to people on their deathbed who've refused prayer, who've refused Christ. It's awful. And so if you've not received Christ as your Savior, at the end of our service today, there'll be men up here to pray with you, and I would urge you to come forward and receive the Lord. And besides all of that, waiting is a waste of your life. You were created to know God, and every moment you don't know Him, that's a moment wasted on some other meaningless pursuit, no matter how successful you may be by the world's estimation. Abraham had a life in Ur as a successful shepherd. Is that why he was created? To taste the successes of this world? No, he had a hunger for the next world. He had eternity in his heart, just like every human being ever created. And he found that only God could fill that longing. And he gave his life to the Lord when the Lord appeared to him. Abraham also received a second separate call from God to serve God. He was called to get out of her and to get into the promised land. It was here in this call, or we might say his calling, that Abraham hesitated and put God on hold. You and I have been called to serve the Lord. Now, we always tend to think of that in terms of one big sweeping responsibility to follow the Lord. In other words, we get saved and we're to follow the Lord. And we're either following Him or we're moving the other way in a backslidden condition and it's an either or. And while that is True, in a sense, our following Him is always made up of many components, each of which can be seen as a calling in its own right. For example, if you're married, being a husband or a wife, you find is a calling after you become a Christian. It's something that when it's done for the Lord, costs you something and requires sacrifice. You don't know anything about love or marriage until you become a Christian. I'm not saying you don't love your wife. I'm saying you don't love your husband. You can even be madly in love with them. You could be willing to die for them. 
But you can't know love in its truest form unless you know God. And you can't know what it's like to be married in its truest form until you're a Christian. And then when you become this Christian, when you're born again, God gives you an entirely new perspective on marriage that you've never had before. And he comes to you, for example, and he says, get out of your old way of thinking about what it means to be a husband. And instead, I want you to love your wife the way Jesus Christ loved the church. And you think immediately, I can't do that. No one can do that. And the Lord says, that's right, but I can do that through you. And you begin a lifetime of learning how that works out. God says, get out of your old way of thinking about what it means to be a wife and instead submit to your husband. As his helper, as unto the Lord. Now, I will say your husband needs a lot of help, right? God created, God looked at Adam and he says, man, you need help. I need to, there's nothing here that can help you, you know. You've named all the animals, man, there is nothing that can help you. You need a helper suitable to you. And so he created a helper for Adam, Eve. And she was to fulfill that role and to submit to him as a role. And and wife, you don't know anything about that until you're a Christian. But once you're a Christian, you think there's a cost, there's a sacrifice, but it's as unto the Lord. The same is true for any and all the various callings in your life. You're a parent, you're an employer, you're an employee, you're a church member. Whatever it might be, the gospel of Jesus Christ touches every one of these with a unique perspective, making them each a calling that involves cost and sacrifice. I, I distinctly remember when I, was, I got saved, I was an outside salesman for a title insurance company. And uh, one of the most fun things that ever happened was the, the first time I turned in my honest, real expense account after I'd gotten saved. They called me into the office and they said, what's going on with your expense account? And I go, why? I saved you a bunch of money. They go, yeah, that's a problem. I go, why is it a problem? Because we're all spending more money than this. I said, yeah, I know, and you're lying about it. Because they taught me how to do that. When I first went to work there, they said, here's how you cheat on your expense account. I thought, well, all right. They tell you you can spend $300 a month at that time, which was like a fortune. Wow, think of all the iTunes cards you could have bought for that. But anyway... And so you spent 299 one month, 301 10 the next month. I mean, it's just the way it was until I turned in my $35 expense account. And they said, look, you're going to have to spend more money because you're making us all look bad. I said, all right, I'll do my best, but I can, you know, I'm honest now. I'm a Christian. I had a different perspective on what I was doing. It wasn't my, you know, it was just the Lord. I took my car. And I, I have to tell you this story. My dad means well. He's a, I love my dad, but he was, uh, th- this is back in the day when you could do this. I had a car. I'd leased a car. What year was it? I was a, it was a beat up. It was a terrible car. It was in Monte Carlo with a six cylinder. One time I was driving down the freeway and the smog pump fell off of the car. <laughs> but I'd had so much trouble with the car, I didn't even stop. I heard this, in, this big noise in the motor and I said, yeah, whatever. I'm still going forward. So anyway... So I took it to my dad's shop, my brothers and my dad. They said, hey, you don't need a smog pump. They just left it off. I said, okay. Uh, so anyway, I'm getting ready to turn this car in. We put the smog pump back on. And uh, I don't know, the car had like 125,000 miles on it after one year. No, two years. And I was supposed to only have like uh, 28,000 miles on it. And so I was going to take a bath on this car. So I... They put the smog pump back. I get in the car. I'm driving off. I look at the speedometer. It's like 23,999 miles on there. 
I said, what's a miracle? I said, no, it's my dad. And uh, so I had to take the car back. Back in those days, I, well, I can't tell you how it's done. I'd have to, you'd have to kill me, but it's pretty easy to turn back speedometers in those days. And I said, I said, what'd you do? He goes, I turned the speedometer back. I said, yeah, you're going to have to put it back. I thought my dad was going to kill me. Not because I asked him to do it, because I was so stupid. I was the stupidest person in the world. Then I had to buy that car. And I thought, what an idiot. But uh, Because I couldn't turn it in. They said, you got too many miles, you have to buy this car. And so then I had to drive around in that worthless Monte Carlo for another two years with stuff falling off of it. But that's you have a different perspective on what it means to interface with the world. There's a cost, there's a sacrifice, but it's very different. We can be walking with the Lord, pressing forward in one or many areas, but hesitating in one or many areas too. I'll use pastors as an example. It's not uncommon for someone in the ministry to devote so much time and energy to that calling as a pastor that they hesitate, they delay, they actually neglect their responsibilities in the home. Pastors' kids are legendary, called PKs. Before Promise Keepers, there were PKs. They're pastor's kids. While the pastor is teaching in the sanctuary, they're burning down the youth building. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's true. But in any walk of life, you can have that where you're just so concentrated, so focused, you're doing this, you know, and you're committed to that, but you're neglecting something else. And that's what happens with the Lord. All that we've said so far then leads us to this simple point that we must constantly review all of our callings in the Lord. It's not good to delay, to hesitate, certainly to neglect any of the things that God has called us to do. Now, chances are God has called you to something that you have put on hold. You're waiting for just the right time when you have just the right resources and then, so you think, you can fulfill that calling. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way for Abraham. It didn't work that way for the disciple in Matthew's Gospel. It won't work that way for us either. Pastor Greg Laurie has said, I agree with it, he says every disciple is a Christian, but not every Christian is a disciple. It's a moment-by-moment, day-by-day choice to follow the Lord in every area of our life with the new perspective that we have as a new person, a new creature in Jesus Christ. Now, let's say you review your callings, which is, I'm going to leave it at that because, you know, you, you don't need a list of the potential things that you're, you know, uh, neglecting. The Holy Spirit is here to tell you that. And if you'll open your heart and seek the Lord, He'll gently show you something you promised God ten years ago, five years ago, five minutes ago. Uh, that you've been neglecting and he'll get you back on track. Well, let's say you do that and you find one or more of those things. You're going to be glad for the kind of friend you have in Jesus because in verses 1 through 3 we'll see that today or right now you can revive the call of God upon your life. For five years Abraham waited. He heard nothing from the Lord, by the way. Was the Lord angry? No. He was being patient with his friend. And so we read in chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we're going to see these promises repeated again and again. We'll talk at length about them for this morning. I want to concentrate just on this moment in Abraham's life when he returned to 
walking with the Lord in his calling. Now, the Lord had said this to Abraham five years earlier, and he was still saying it to Abraham, or we might say that he hadn't revoked it. Sometimes we feel, do we not, as though God is silent, as though he is not speaking to us. You ever had that situation? You just think, man, I haven't heard from the Lord in the longest time. Maybe it's because he's already spoken to you, and until you act on what he said, there's really nothing more to say. And in that sense, it's really a gracious thing. Because the Lord said to Abraham, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to leave your family. I want you to go to the promised land. I'll show you where it is. And then, he doesn't t- and then Abraham stops partway. He doesn't get into the promised land. God quits talking to him because there's nothing else to say. And if you say something else, it might confuse Abraham. He might think, well, maybe I didn't really hear from God. God's now saying this. And so God just remains silent because there's nothing more to say. And he was really pretty clear in what he said. Sometimes this works out in a funny kind of way. I remember many, many years ago, uh, one of the uh, guys was here. Uh, he was getting out of the military, got out of the Navy, and he came up and he asked me, he goes, he goes will you pray f- for me? And I go, sure. And he goes, man, I, I'm getting out of the military. I got out. I can't find a job to save my life. I just, you know, my family's going to suffer. I, I just, I need a job so bad. I mean, I was weeping with this guy, you know, just, all right, you know. And, and uh, I said, maybe your wife, you know, let's have her come up. And, and he goes, well, okay, you know. And so she comes up and I said, well, we're going to pray for your husband, you know, because he can't find a job. And she goes, uh, yeah, wait a minute. What he means is he can't find a job as a pilot right now. And he won't do anything else. There's millions of jobs he's been offered. And I said, is that true? And he goes, well, yeah. I said, well, you're a deadbeat. (laughs) What's the matter with you? They were leaving the church anyway. But anyway, uh, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, what do you say? I mean, God had, you know, God's already told him. He says, take care of your family. Now he's like, oh, I can't find a job. Well, yeah, there's a, you're, you're throwing jobs away because you have a particular focus on what you're going to do with your life. And really what you're saying is, I'm going to let my family suffer until I can find the perfect job. And so, you know, a lot of times God has spoken to us and we have our own, we're in our own orbit. We're in our own dimension about what we think is going on. And uh, we just need to return to, you know, get grounded with the Lord. Now, God waited patiently for Abraham to obey his calling and serve him. He didn't withdraw his calling. I would have. Hey, if you're, you know, you're looking down from heaven, you say, I'm going to save this guy and I'm going to call him. And it's a pretty simple thing. He just needs to leave his family and go over into the promised land. Yes, there's a cost. Yes, there's a sacrifice. But it's not that hard. And then five years later, he's still living in Haran with his family. You think, hey, why don't I try somebody else? Maybe there's another guy over here. But instead, God waited because that was God's plan. He didn't withdraw it. Now, does God's patience with Abraham cause you to think, that's great, I'll just wait till I'm ready to serve the Lord and God will just pick up right with me where we left off? Now, that may be true, but if you think that way it doesn't make you much of a friend to God, does it? I mean, it's great that God is that kind of a friend to me, but is that the kind of friend you really want to be to the Lord? The kind of, do you have any friends or people who you thought were friends that just take advantage of you all the time? Fair-weather friends, friends that only come around when they need something, like when you win the lottery and you know things like that. Well, maybe you haven't won the lottery. If you have, I'd like to talk to you. But anyway... 
friend. But uh, you know what I mean. Nobody wants it. That's not friendship. I mean, there are many, all of us have had experiences where we thought we had a friend, our BFF. And it turned out it was just a person who was using us, a person who wanted something from us, a person who wasn't a true friend in that sense. And so if you're sitting here thinking, hey, great, I've got a true friend in the Lord and I'll just treat him like dirt, that should say something to you. It should break your heart. Abraham should have looked at that and said, wow, what have I done to this, this relationship that God has begun with me? Perhaps this is why when Jesus said he was calling us as his friends, he prefaced it by saying, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. That verse always frustrated me. Actually, it frightened me because I thought the Lord might be saying, if I perfectly obey you, I'll be your friend. But if you disobey me, I'm gonna, you're not going to be on my Facebook page anymore. <laughs> Where'd I go, Lord? You know, I mean, that's what it sounds like. He says, well, you're my friend as long as you obey me. Well, that's not really friendship either, is it? That's a master-slave relationship. I mean, he just said, I'm not calling you servants, I'm calling you friends. So I think Abraham gives us some depth to that, a depth I've not seen before. We are Jesus' friends, and we have callings to serve Him. We're not very good friends when we take advantage of Him and wait to serve Him when it's best for us, when it's comfortable and convenient for us, even though He is offering His forever friendship to us at every moment. Of every day. He goes on being our friend, waiting for us. We're the ones who lose out, and we are taking advantage of him, something no friend ought to do. Now, the truth is, you can always go on hesitating and delaying and neglecting God's call in your life. You can settle down in whatever heron you want to, and you can live there until you die or until the Lord raptures you. And then you become this character that we're going to get to a little bit later on in our story. Lot. When I was first saved again, and I read, you know, you start at the beginning and you read Genesis and you're, you know, because you want to get the whole Bible in 10 minutes and all that kind of stuff. And so reading Genesis, it was like a year later, I'm in, in, in uh, reading Peter's letters where all of a sudden he calls Lot a righteous man. I like almost fell over. Lot, you're talking about the same Lot from the Old Testament, the Lot who took advantage of, of Abraham's uh, you know, goodness and took the best grazing land, then started moving towards Sodom and Gomorrah, then moved into Sodom, then became the mayor of Sodom. You're talking about Lot, who when the angels came to visit Sodom, the night before they were going to destroy it, and a mob came and wanted to uh, molest them, he said, don't take these men, but here's my daughters. That guy who didn't want to leave Sodom, had to be drug out, whose wife turned to a pillar of salt, who went on to do even weirder stuff after that, this guy was saved? Yeah. And so the question becomes, who do you want to be in this story, this life of Abraham? you want to be Abraham? Do you want to be Lot? Abraham hesitated, but then he got up from that place and he said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back to serving the Lord. I'm going to answer that call. I'm going to fulfill my calling. Lot never really got into that mode. He was just a totally worldly Christian. Now, it's not easy being Abraham. I mean, that guy, you saw from the Lego film. I mean, it's not easy being <laughs> Abraham. You've got to leave your family behind at some point. You've got to leave your city behind. You've got to leave everything behind, as it were. Uh, your life is filled with strange trials. Abraham will see, God said you're going to be the father of many nations. He changes his name to Abraham, which indicates he's going to be the father of many. 
So he'd go introduce, hey, who are you? I'm Abraham. Oh, you're the father of many. How many kids do you have? I don't have any kids. What kind of an idiot are you? Later on, how many kids do you have? I have uh, one, but uh, I can't call him the child of my promise because he was born, you know, I shouldn't have had him. How many kids do you have? I have one. And, and your descendants are going to be as the stars of the sky? So that's a trial, if you ask me. And then after all of that, God says, hey, guess what we're going to do today? You're going to take Isaac, you're going to kill him. You're going to sacrifice him. So it's not easy to be Abraham, but there's really no other choice in this story. And the truth is, you want to be the friend of God. There is something about... Because when you get to Abraham in Genesis 22, and, and God has taken him all this way, through all this path and all... And he says, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sacrifice Isaac on a mountain that I'm going to show you. And Abraham gets up early in the morning. He sets his alarm as early as he can get up. And he says, if the, God, let's get it on. If you're going to do this, let's do it. I want to do it right now. And he journeys there, and the Bible tells us in a commentary in the New Testament that he would have gone through with it believing that God would have raised his son from the dead because he believed so much in the promises of God. Now, God's not going to ask you and I to do anything like that. But the moral of the story is Abraham knew God so personally, so intimately, so wonderfully that God could ask him to do that and he could do it without hesitation. He says, well, you promised me that through Isaac my seed would live, so I guess if I kill him, you're going to raise him from the dead, so let's just do this thing. That's why he was called the friend of God. And so, yeah, there's a cost, there's a sacrifice, but there's no one else to be in this story. And in your heart of hearts, you're called to be an Abraham. And so today, no matter where you've settled short of God's calling, you can get up from there, you can get out of there and get back to the place the Lord has for you, the place of living by His promises. It's up to us. Let's pray.